are going to look at the second pair, uh, the fruit of the Spirit today. Uh, last week, we did love and joy. This week, we're going to do peace and patience. What is peace? What is peace? It's one of those words we kind of know what it, we, we, we know what it means. Maybe it's a hard time to define. How would you define peace? Anyone? Calmness, sense of well-being. What's that? Settledness. Yeah, these. Yeah, absence of, of strife, conflict. All these things constitute peace. And, and, and in our text, peace is something that is a fruit of the Spirit. But there really are two, I guess, aspects or two definitions that align with two different kinds of peace that the Bible tells us about. If the first kind uh, in the first, I guess, definition of peace would be a cessation of hostilities, a cessation of hostilities. Um, turn to Romans chapter five, verse one, and we'll see the first kind of peace that the Bible talks about. Um, did I say first? What did I say? Romans, Romans five one, right? Romans five one. Therefore, since we have been justified, and that word means declared righteous. Therefore, since we have been declared righteous through faith, we have peace with God. So the first peace the Bible talks about is peace with God. Um, and that impl- implies what? What does it say if the Bible says, now you have peace with God? What's the implication? You didn't have it before. Exactly. So this piece is, is this notion of an agreement between warring parties to end hostilities. Um, if, if someone in a war has declared peace, that means that they're no longer fighting. Now, that doesn't directly apply because we were, in fact, look at chapter 5, verse 10, down to verse 10. For if while we were God's, what? Enemies. Now, this is warfare. This is, this is terminology of warfare. While we were enemies of God, while we were hostile towards God, and while God was hostile towards us, we were, Ephesians 2 says, we were objects of God's wrath. We were His enemies. He, in fact, made peace or provided for peace with us Through Christ. So, again, the first kind of peace is what I would call redemptive peace uh, or positional peace. This is a a position. We stand in a state of peace. Those who have trusted in Christ stand in a state, a peaceful state with God. They are no longer God's objects of wrath. We talked about that this morning with with, um, communion. So the first piece is peace with God because we were, in fact, enemies. Look at Colossians chapter 1. Now, you may be saying, I, I didn't hate God. I wasn't His enemy. I, I was God-fearing and I was a good person. Well, no, the Bible says you were His enemy. Colossians 1, verse 21. Once you were alienated from God and were enemies in your minds... Because of your evil behavior. We were not at peace with God. We were His enemies. We were at odds with Him. And He 
through Christ reconciled us, Romans 5.11, He reconciled us to Himself. He, he, in other words, he, he, there was a cessation of hostility towards us. If you will, He called a peace treaty. And this peace treaty only came through Christ. And we have been reconciled. Now, this is a little different in that there was nothing we could do to cease hostilities with God because we were dead in our sins, dead in our trespasses, enemies of God. So this is a little different because normally when you have two parties that are warring, they both agree to cease hostilities. We couldn't do that in and of ourselves. So this really is just one way, which is truly amazing, that God, while we were enemies of Him, He made a way for us to be made right and to be at peace with Him. Now, if you'll note in your Bible, some of the, some this could be uh, translated, um, therefore, since we have been justified through faith, let us have peace with God. But that's really not the sense of the word. The word is, it is, we already have peace with God. This is what I, again, what I call redemptive peace or positional peace. And the reason I say it's positional is this peace you cannot feel. This is a legal concept. This peace is a legal concept. And we get that from the word justified, declared righteous. This was a legal term. So you're in a court of law, and um, uh, you're tried, and Jesus is our advocate. Does that sound familiar to anybody? That's from what book? First John? Yeah, First John. He is our advocate. He, he, he pleads to the Father in our defense because He died for our sins. He paid the penalty for our sins. And God, on that basis, declares us not guilty. At that moment, we are at peace with Him. You may not feel it. This is not a peace that you feel. This is a legal, um, this is a legal declaration. This is the position that you have. You are legally in a state of peace with God. It's not something you feel. Our salvation, our legal salvation, is not something we feel. It is, our, it is a right standing with God. Now, why is it important that it's not something that we... This, this kind of peace, we're going to talk about another kind of peace. Why is it important that this kind of peace not be based on our feelings? They feel they change all the time, especially when you're pregnant, right? Uh, our feelings are changing all the time. And if our peace with God, our legal standing with God was based on our feelings, we'd sometimes be in right standing with Him, sometimes we wouldn't. Sometimes we would, sometimes... Some people, most of the time we wouldn't. So, so I want you to get, it, get a grasp on this. This is a legal standing. This is a description of our position before God. We are at peace with Him because we were enemies of His. So this is a legal status not a tangible experience. It's true whether you feel it or not. Turn, turn to Ephesians chapter 6. We're going to look at a lot of passages this morning. So if, if it's hard to keep up, just write it down. You can read it later. Ephesians 6.15. It's interesting how Paul describes the gospel. Ephesians 6.15. With your feet fitted, this is talking about the, the, our spiritual armor, 
with your feet fitted with the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace. Isn't it interesting? Of all the things he could have said, the gospel defined or described the gospel. He says, this is a gospel of peace. Now, what is, what is this grammatical construction called? A genitive, thank you. A gospel of peace. What does that mean? Someone beat you to it this week, Danny. A gospel of peace. What does that mean? What, what are the possibilities? Characterized by peace? Is it the gospel characterized by peace? That's an option. You're there. You're, keep going. Keep going. Okay. Okay. So it's a peace produced by the gospel. In other words, this is this, the peace is the result of the gospel. That's how I kind of t- I think it is probably, although it is certainly characterized by peace. Gospel of peace I take in this context to be the peace that comes from the gospel. The gospel offers peace. What kind of peace? Peace with God. Through justification, legal peace, a legal standing, the gospel that brings peace, that provides and offers peace. It is is a peace treaty. It is a token of peace that God extends to us as his enemies that when we believe in Christ and we are declared righteous, we are now in a state of peace. We don't usually think of peace that way, do we? But it is. We have peace with God. Uh, I think sometimes it's harder for us to, to really grasp that uh, when, when we don't really fully understand how separate and apart we were from Him. If we don't really grasp the, the, the relationship that we stood with God beforehand. Remember in, in, in the passage Colossians, we were alienated from Him. What is alienation? It's, it's separation. It's broken relationship. And oftentimes when we share the gospel, we, we, we leave that part out. We, we leave the part out. And now I'm not suggesting that we be like bulls in a china closet. You remember, do you remember, anybody remember Chick Tracks? C-H-I-C Tracks, Chick Tracks. They had these outlandish, they were evangelism tracks and they had this like cartoonish things and they had the flames of hell and, and these people, these people, you know, in the flames of hell with their teeth gnashing and their, you know, the hands are... I'm not suggesting that. But people need to understand that apart from Christ, they are not in a good place. They, they do not have peace with God. They are in a state of alienation. They are His enemies. And if they die in that state, truly, uh, there is hell to pay. Redemptive peace, positional peace. God says we are now at peace with Him. We are now in right standing with Him. We are no longer viewed as His enemies. In fact, First John chapter three says that we have been called now His children. What an amazing thing to go from enemy of God to a child of God. Do you understand that not everybody is a child of God? Contrary to what our culture says, we're not all children of God. The Bible says, "Who's the children of God?" To those John one or is it John one twelve? To all who believed, He gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in His name. So we become His children when we believe. Now we are in right standing with Him. So the first kind of peace the Bible talks about is we have peace with God. Now there's another kind of peace, though, and this is what I call experiential peace. We are are at peace 
with God in terms of our position, but now we have the peace of God once we are saved. This is, this is the tangible part of peace. This is the kind of peace that we feel. Redemptive peace is positional. This aspect of peace we experience. Redemptive peace is the absence of conflict. Experiential peace is, this, is the sense of well-being and rest. Turn to John chapter 14. This is the night before he was going to be crucified. And he's, he's talking to his disciples. In chapter 14, he's comforting them. And look at what, some, what his, part of his comfort for them is. Verse 25, All this I have spoken while still with you. But the Advocate, here it is, Blake, you were right, is also in the Gospel of John. But the Advocate, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, will teach you all things and remind you of everything I have said to you. said to you. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give you. I do not give to you as the world gives. So do not let your hearts be troubled and do not be afraid. Now, in the context, he's not talking about positional peace. He's talking about a tangible peace that, 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 that they have available to them in the midst of what? Their troubles and their fears and, and what they're going to be facing and what they're going to experience, in fact, the very next day. He says, my peace I give to you. And in this interesting phrase, I do not give to you as the world gives. So how do you think if the peace that Christ gives us, as opposed to the peace that the world offers us, what would be the distinction? This could be audience participation time. What do you think of the difference between the peace that Jesus offers us and the peace the world offers us? That's great contrast. One is fleeting. The other is forever. Yeah, long-lasting. It's permanent. What else? What? Strings attached. Yeah. The world offers peace, but there's strings attached. Conditions. Yeah. God's is unconditional. What's that? Material and spiritual. Yeah, I mean... This world, how, how, are, how are, do people experience, non-Christians experience peace? Sometimes just to try the power of positive thinking, right? They do the Anthony Robbins thing. Uh, but that's, that's an illusion. And that will come crumbling down the first time they face um, tragedy and chaos. There's a permanence. There's a stability because it's based not on temporary things. See, the world... Peace is all based on temporary things. But the peace that Christ offers is based on Him who is eternal and never changing. So He says, you will experience My peace. He promises His disciples, when that time comes, when that day comes, and you will be fearful. You will, what does He say again? You will be troubled and you will be fearful. He said, you can experience peace in the midst of that. Turn over to chapter 16, verse 33. Same book. I have told you these things. He's wrapping up what he has told, what he's instructing his disciples, and he's getting ready to pray for them. And he says, I've told you these things so that in me you may have peace. In this world you will have trouble, but take heart, I have overcome the world. 
Again, this is a comforting peace. This is a peace that we experience. A sense of well-being. A sense that it is well with my soul. It is the freedom of the mind and the heart from anxiety and from fear. It is, it is a sense of tranquility. It, it's that hymn that uh, Newton wrote. Was it, was it Newton? No, who, is, it is, who did well with my soul? Horatio Spafford. Yes, thank you. And anybody know the story behind that? Annie, do you know that? Yeah, I was like, well, I think it was a ship sank or something, wasn't it? Yeah, something. Yeah, so shipwreck. His wife and children, I think, died. But that, that's the kind of peace that God offers us. It, it, is, it is an experiential peace. Uh, turn to Philippians chapter 4. Philippians chapter 4. How, how, do we, how do we access this peace? How do we experience this peace? Verses 6 and 7. Do not be anxious. Do not worry about anything. But in every situation, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your request to God. And then, the peace of God, the peace that comes from God, God's peace that He will give to you, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. It comes through prayer. That God uses prayer as a conduit for His peace. Now, there are a couple things here. Um, Number one, there is an inward aspect. Again, this is peace that is produced by prayer and it's accompanied by thanksgiving. In other words, it's a heart of faith and receptivity. It's a heart of faith and receptivity. When we pray, we can't, this is not a formula. This is not, okay, I'm going to sit down and I'm going to mumble some words out and then I'm going to expect God to give me, a, give me peace. No, this is a heart that is filled with faith and receptivity that is seeking God that is in the midst of a time of fear and worry and anxiety, seeks Him and seeks His peace and prays, accompanied by thanksgiving, that we can experience the peace that comes from God. The peace that Jesus says, My peace I give to you. And it's interesting, He uses this word, in, and um, the peace of God, this peace will guard, this peace will guard your hearts and your minds. Why, think about that for a minute. Why would peace need to guard, which is a military term for a sentry standing his post, why would he say our hearts and our minds need to be guarded? Think about it for a minute. You are in the midst of fear and uncertainty, and with a heart of faith and receptivity, you pray, you bring your petitions before God. And you pour your heart out for him. And he said, my peace is going to guard your hearts and your minds at that moment. Why would our hearts and our minds need to be guarded? Let's let's, let's talk about hearts first. Let's assume for the moment that, that the hearts has to do with what? Our emotions. Why would our emotions, why would God's peace need to guard and protect us from our emotions? They're untrustworthy. They're going to they're come against us. Your, your emotions and your feelings, that fear and that doubt, that unbelief, is going to come against God's peace. So it's interesting that, that Paul describes this as 
protecting peace. To guard your heart from any emotions or feelings that would say, ah, God's not going to do it. It's never going to get better. But He also guards our what? Our minds. Our, how we think. How we view. How we perceive. One of the, the two greatest enemies to peace in our life is our heart and our mind. We start thinking unbiblical thoughts. We start feeling unbiblical feelings. And those things will destroy the peace of God in our heart. So he says, I want, I, I'm gonna, it will guard your hearts and your minds from wrong feelings, from wrong thinking. It will bring confidence. So there is a, there is a peace that is inward, that's, in, in, that's eternal or internal, that that God will guard our hearts and minds. And, and he says this peace will be beyond transcend understanding. It's hard, it's hard to describe this kind of peace. But we know that when we don't have it, we've allowed either our thinking or our feelings to attack and, and, and tear down the peace in our hearts. It's inward. It's eternal. But there's an outward, there's an external part of this kind of peace, and that's peace with others. It's awfully hard to experience peace inside internally when we are not at peace externally. Now, real quickly, turn to Ephesians 2.15. Now, this context, he's talking about the peace that the Gospel brought Jews and Gentiles together. But certainly applied to any relationships within the body of Christ. Ephesians 2.15, By setting aside in his flesh the law with its command and regulations, his purpose was to create in himself one new humanity. Not Jew, not Gentile. Not Jewish Christians, not Gentile Christians, but one new humanity out of the two, thus making peace. Uh, the Bible, the, the entirety of the New Bible constantly is talking about preserve unity, preserve the peace between one another. So there's an inward, eternal, internal peace. There's an outward, external peace that we are at peace with others. And, and, and they are related. It's awfully hard to experience the peace from God if we're not at peace with others. So, through the Spirit is peace. There's two different kinds of peace. There is peace with God that we have, which is positional, which is, which, which is legal. We are at peace with Him. And then there's the peace of God, the peace that God gives us, that we experience when we are, when we are fearful, when we are worried, when we are facing anxiety. So, peace. The second fruit is patience. What's patience? You know the old saying, Lord, give me patience. Give it to me right now. Um, it's an attitude. It's an attitude of bearing provocation, annoyance, misfortune, delay, hardship. It, it is bearing with all of those things with, with fortitude. And here's the, here's the key. And without complaint... Anger or confrontation. Let me say that again. It's an attitude of bearing up under provocation, annoyance, misfortune, delay, hardship, with fortitude and without complaint or without confrontation. What do we mean by that? There's two aspects again. The first thing is patience with God. Now, this sound, I don't mean this to be blasphemous. There are times when we need to be patient 
with God. Why would we need to be patient with God? Uh, God sometimes doesn't work in my life as quickly as I wish he would. He has his own pace. And, um, and, and his pace is not my pace. My pace is, I want it now, God. Turn to Romans chapter 2. God has a different pace. Romans chapter 2. And I need to be patient with God. I need to be patient and let him work. And not just work what he does, but when he decides to do it. Um, Romans chapter 2, verse 4. Or do you show contempt for the riches of his kindness, forbearance, and patience? Not Not realizing that God's kindness is intended to lead you to repentance. Now, this context, he's talking about a salvation, that God was patient, and we need to be patient with him. So, God was patient with us. Hebrews chapter 6, verse 11. You just write this down for the sake of time. Hebrews 6, 11. We'll start in verse 9. Even though we speak like this, dear friends, we're convinced of better things in your case, the things that have to do with salvation. God is not unjust. He will not forget your work and the love you've shown Him as you've helped His people and continue to help Him. We want to show. Uh, we want each of you to show this same diligence um, to the very end so that you have hope may be fully realized. We do not want you to become lazy, become imitate those who through faith and patience inherit what is promised. Through faith and what? Patience. Inherit what is promised. For instance, he uses Abraham as an example. For when God made his promise to Abraham, since there was no one greater for him to swear by, he swore by himself, saying, I will surely bless you and give you many descendants. How long did Abraham have to wait for Isaac? Anybody remember? Almost 11 years. 11 years. Verse 15, And so, after waiting patiently, Abraham received what was promised. So this is the sense in which we need to have patience with God. We need to be patient with what God is doing in our lives. Even though it may be painful, even though it may hurt, we need to be patient. So there's a patience that we have with God. Not in a blasphemous sense, but in a sense of we are patiently waiting Him to fulfill His promises and His purposes in our lives. And this is what I would call perseverance in the midst of divine delay. We have to persevere and be patient when, there, when God is apparently delaying what we are asking for. It takes patience. And I know it's easy to say, patience is tough, especially when you're suffering. You need to be patient. But there's a second part of patience, and that's patience with each other. We need to be patient with one another. And this is this notion of forbearance. What's forbearance? To forbear or to bear with. We are to bear with one another. It means to refrain or to hold back when subject to annoyance or offense. Now, let's flesh this out a little bit. Matthew chapter 18. Turn with me in Matthew 18. We, we, I talked about this years ago. Um, Um, and and there were some people that struggled with it, 
surprise. I've never done that before, right? I've never seen anything. Matthew chapter 18, verse 15. If your brother or sister sins, go and point out their fault just between the two of you. If they listen to you, you have won them over. And then he, then he goes through this whole process. If they won't listen, you take two or three others. If they won't listen to them, you take it to the church. So this is a process of, that we call formal church discipline. Now, some of your translations in verse 15 says, if your brother or sister sins against you, this phrase. This phrase is lacking in uh, all of our earliest manuscripts. So if you're a TR guy, um, uh, bear, with, bear with me uh, this morning. But that most believe, or not most, but the, those who hold to an eclectic text, we have to explain why isn't this phrase against you found in the earliest manuscripts. Um, that, that's a whole different uh, discussion. Uh, most, of our, most of our contemporary translations do not include it, uh, this phrase. It's just if your brother or sister sins, what do we do if, if we say a fellow believer who's sinning is in sin? According to Matthew 18, what are we supposed to do? What does it say? Go and confront them, point it out to them. What's the, what's the ultimate purpose? Forgiveness and restoration, right? So when, when a fellow Christian is, sins or is, is, is sinning, unrepentant sinning, we are to what? We are to go to them. We're to point it out to them if they do not listen to us. If they listen to us, repent. Great. If they don't, then we bring two or three others. If they don't listen to them, we bring to the church. And this is the whole process. So in the, in, when someone is sinning, not against you, but when someone is sinning, then we confront them. Then we point it out. Then we start this process with the goal of, of restoration and forgiveness. Now look at verse 21. Then Peter came to Jesus. And now, now he, this makes sense. He says, well... What if they sin against me? Lord, how many times shall I forgive my brother or sister who sins now we have against me? Does he say, if a brother or sister sins against you, you go confront them and you tell them how much it offended you and to get it right. Is that what it says? What does it say? Read it. You don't have to read it out loud. Just read it. How many times shall I forgive them who sins against me? And Jesus says, I tell you not seven times, but seventy times seven. And he goes on telling about the kingdom of heaven. Is there anything in there that when someone sins against you, you're to go point it out to them and, and tell them to get it right? And tell them how much they offended you? <laughs> exactly. No, we don't do that when they sin against us. What do we do when... Someone sins against... Now, if someone is sinning, they're in a state of sin, they're in unrepentant sin, then we're to confront them, then we're to point it out and start the process. But if they sin against us, what are we supposed to do? Confront them? Um, turn to Colossians chapter 3. And, and this is... I, I, uh, I, I, sincerely, I, I sincerely believe this in my study of Scripture. And if you find, if you find it somewhere, I will, I will stand up here and I will recant of what I say. The Bible never teaches us to confront one another when someone has annoyed us or offended us or hurt our feelings. He doesn't say to confront one each other over that. Colossians chapter 3, verse 12. Therefore, as God's chosen people, 
holy and dearly loved. Clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Many of the fruit of the Spirit there, right? Bear with each other and forgive one another. When are we to bear one another, bear with one another and forgive one another? He tells us the second part of the sentence. When, when are we to bear with each other and forgive one another? If any of you have a grievance against someone, forgive as the Lord forgave you. So if I have a grievance against somebody in the church, a fellow believer, am I to go confront them? Say, i we, I got a bone to pick with you. Do we confront them? According to Colossians 3, according to Matthew, do we confront one another when we're annoyed? When someone has annoyed us? Or someone has said something that maybe ticked us off or hurt our feelings? Do we say, do we confront them? He says to bear with them. Just bear with it and forgive it. When they are living in sin, that's something different. When they are in unrepentant sin, that's something different. Not sin against us, but sin. We, we remain and experience peace with each other, not through conflict. Can you imagine if we confronted each other over every time someone in this church ticked each other off? Can you imagine? That would be hell on earth. I was going to say, that would be like being married. No, listen, this is important. This is important. I've, I, there are books that are written, Care Enough to Confront. There was a book that was written called Care Enough to Confront. The Bible says care enough to just forbear with them and forgive them. We confront only when they are in sin. Now, again, you can make it all right. Well, if it hurt my feeling, they sin. So I'm going to confront them with their sin. Yeah, that's just a loophole. We experience peace with each other through forbearance. We bear with one another. I'm going to say something that's unkind at times. Or maybe, uh, I, again, I, I didn't have a good filter on at the time. You just need to bear with me. Just bear with me. You know why? Because I bear with you too. From time to time. Some of you I don't have to bear. Some of you take a little bit more forbearance than others. And so do I. Sometimes, you know, we're just having a bad day. We just need someone to bear with us. Sometimes we're just cranky. We need someone to bear with us and love us and forgive us, not confront us. The peace and patience. This, this is interesting. I, I think that it's interesting that Paul, kind of, I think he may kind of put these together. They do kind of form a, what's called a symbiotic relationship. What's a symbiotic relationship? Uh, it's a relationship that's interdependent, where one feeds the other. Think about it for a moment. When we experience peace... When we, we, we obviously have peace with God through just being justified, being declared righteous, and as we experience the peace that God gives us, the experiential peace, it's easier for us to be what? Patient. If we're not at peace, it's awfully hard to be patient. But what happens when we experience patience and when we forbear with one another? What's, what does that produce? What does that feed? We're at peace. Peace and patience. They're, they feed each other. They're inter, independent. They are mutually benefited by one another. So, peace 
or patience with God is having perseverance in the midst of divine delay. Patience with each other is forbearance in the midst of human frailty. We recognize that our brothers and sisters in Christ were all frail. And, and He calls us to forbear with one another and to forgive one another. That is the peace that the Spirit produces in our lives. Would you please stand? I'm going to read a doxology this morning from 2 Thessalonians. And then we will sing and we will go. This is from 2 Thessalonians 3.16. And now may the Lord of peace, may the Lord of peace Himself give you peace at all times and in every way. The Lord be with you all. And everyone said, Amen. Would you please stand, join hands and stand. You're already standing. Stand up again. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise Him all creatures here below. Praise Him above ye heavenly hosts. Praise Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. Amen. Let's pray. Father, may we indeed be filled with Your peace. We thank You that we are at peace with You. And may we experience Your peace in our lives. Father, as we experience Your peace, may we indeed in forbearance and forgiveness bear with one another. May we experience Your peace.